Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Bob Posen, who, in addition to teaching at MIT uh, in the Sloan School, uh, is um, the author of a bunch of books. Most recently, this book right here called Remote Inc., very timely, How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are, co-authored with Alexander Samuel. And then this sort of follows on an earlier book, kind of a classic by now, called Extreme Productivity. There's a lot of common threads I found between these two books. A lot of what you wrote in that book is uh, sort of adapted to the remote environment. And at the time you talk about remote environment, but it wasn't really the the main working environment. And so I guess, you know, one question I have for you, Bob, is how did you become an expert on productivity? I mean, I guess maybe I'll answer the question by saying a little bit about your background, but you studied law, you wound up teaching uh, at at universities, then you, you got into government administration, you worked at the SEC, and then you went into the private sector and worked for Fidelity and, and MFS and rose to the top. Uh, all the while, you, you, you were also teaching at Harvard Business School. And at one point, I think you had a full-time gig at Harvard Business School and a full-time gig as chair of MFS. Uh, and, you know, you'd written on policy issues, worked for the Massachusetts governor. You'd written on issues related to Social Security and, and government policy, law and economics. You were early in the law and economics movement. Uh, and yet now you're writing about things like like productivity. My, I, I became familiar with your work on pension funds. And then when I uh, saw these books, I thought it was two different Robert Posen's. I didn't actually make the connection. I didn't. I thought there was two people with the same name. That's my twin, Greg. <laughs> That's my twin. So I was, uh, as you said, teaching a full load at Harvard Business School, and I was executive chair of MFS Investment Management. So those were two full-time jobs, and I wrote a piece for the Harvard Business Review, and the editor said to me, you're the only one who writes his or her pieces on time and within the word limit. Everybody else is late. They, they go way over the word limit. And it looks like you have two full-time jobs, so we want to know what your secret sauce is. So he interviewed me. The interview went viral. He asked me to write it up in a little piece, which I did for the Harvard Business Review. And before I knew it, then people started asking me to talk about productivity. And HarperCollins offered me a book contract to write this book, Extreme Productivity. And what it really is, is my articulation of the things that have helped me be more productive over my career. And so it just sort of forced me to systematically go through that and think about what made me very productive. And that's what I tried to convey in that book. 
Now we, we, you know, we both teach in business schools and although we don't have courses here at my schools in things like productivity or how to you know, run meetings or how to you know, write memos, I, I think you're, you're actually teaching some classes that, that have that as, as its focus. You know, we academics tend to think that they tend to think that's not a, not a proper academic discipline. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I don't teach it in the regular MIT curriculum. I teach it to executives in the executive ed course. I teach a course called Maximizing Your Personal Productivity, and it's quite a popular course. I actually think that the MBAs would like the course, but as you say, there's a bit of uh, intellectual snobbery. That sort of course is beneath the regular curriculum, so it's not there. It's in, uh, it's in the curriculum for executives. But, you know, the interest of this is so huge because I did a questionnaire with 21 questions on personal productivity, and Harvard Business Review published it online, and we got over 20,000 responses of people who filled out the questionnaire completely and accurately. We actually had another 10,000 people who did partials, but we had enough data there for 20,000 people. So clearly lots of people are concerned about this issue, and that's why they read this book. That's why they take the course. Well, we do sort of in, in some of our classes, we, you know, we have classes on decision theory. We have classes on microeconomics for decision makers. You know, we have data and decision. So we have this word decision in a bunch of our, our classes. And, 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 you know, it seems like when you read the book, uh, Extreme Productivity, a, a lot of what you're describing kind of, it's, it's very similar to the kinds of things that economists say, right? To value opportunity cost, to, to kind of think about where you get the biggest bang for your buck, start with your objectives, define your constraints, and then, you know, work your way to, to the solution. And, and you're, you know, you're trying to do some kind of optimization. So it sounded like, I mean, within the book, I kept putting it into the language of constrained optimization. Yeah, that's, that's probably a, a reasonable way of looking at it. It's, it's a combination of decision-making theory and uh, common sense, you know, and people who apply what it has to say systematically can get, get real benefits. And at the end of my executive course, I, which is usually, uh, well, we've been doing it four four-hour sessions, I ask uh, people to stand up in front of the class and uh, what are they going to change about the way they go about their professional lives that will improve them because of the course. So, and uh, I'm always interested to see what are the, the nuggets that people take away. Well, you described in your life history where you first went to work for a law firm and you encountered the practice of the the billable hour i've always been kind of uh i've always been kind of astonished that that has not been you know eliminated or or modified since it was first created i mean you know we've got time and materials workers in in, in the contract space but you know to have professional services still think in terms of of, of billable hours it, it, it seems contrary to the whole notion of efficiency, right? I mean, when, when my students come to me and they say, oh, could you please give me a, a better grade because I, 
I studied for so long and worked so hard, you know, my, my, I'm always tempted to say, well, now that I know how much you worked and you still got this performance, I'm tempted to downgrade your, your grade. <laughs> you know, you got less output well, per unit of input. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Uh, a billable hour system is an input system. And in a knowledge-based economy, the idea that counting the inputs is the way to look at it is mm -hmm. just crazy. Because as you say, people shouldn't be congratulated for spending more hours uh, on something if they have a bad result. Or alternatively, if somebody writes a brilliant paper and they did it in three hours, you're not going to say, well, you should have taken three days. You only took three hours, so I'm going to downgrade you for that. So what we really want is an output-based system, which you can think of as results or if you want to call them KPIs or things like that. You want people to focus on the outputs and the results and not the inputs. The problem is this, is algorithms survive because they're so easy to measure. Mm -hmm. And they have this delusion that they're really good measure of productivity. And I think the other reason they survive is that senior management wants some system of accountability. And they're very concerned if you don't have people coming, you know, to the office nine to six, or they don't log in their hours, how do we know what they're doing? Maybe they're just going to the beach. Maybe they're just playing video games. So that's why I think, in my view, the only way to get organizations off hours and to a results-oriented output system is to provide them with an alternative system of accountability. And that's what we try to do in the book, and we call it success metrics. What we say is that the boss and the team needs to get together and figure out what are the objectives for the next week or month or big project, whatever the relevant unit is, and then for the boss to say, okay, how are we going to know at the end of this time period whether we've been successful? And then people can work hard and actually figure out, well, how are we going to know whether we're successful? How will we know? And they'll come up with concrete indicators. And to me, history, business, academia, government, I found those are really incredibly useful because first of all, the objectives that are set in a lot of organizations are pretty vague and people don't really know what it is that they're being asked to do. So when you follow up with the question of, well, how are we going to, what success metrics are we going to have? You really clarify for everybody what it is exactly that you're trying to do. If you say something like, we're trying to improve customer service. Well, people can have very different views of that. So that process of establishing success met metrics is very clarifying. Second of all, once you have success metrics, then I think there's much less of an incentive for the managers to micromanage because they know what's expected and what deliverables there are going to be at the end of the period. And so they can uh, chill out a little. And third of all, probably most importantly for the employees, 
once they have a set of success metrics and they know what they're supposed to deliver within time, within certain time periods, then it really doesn't matter where and when and how they get there as long as they get there. And so it creates a lot of flexibility and autonomy for the employees who then really gain a lot more control over their working lives. And to me, it's that flexibility and autonomy that really increases job satisfaction and it increases productivity. So that's a long way of saying we got to get off hours and inputs. We got to move to outputs and results. And we've got to show managers and bosses that we can have a system of accountability that's based on results. Otherwise, we can't get them to. That's why we're hanging out so long to hours. So are, are we still, I guess it's fair to say we still live in the shadow of the factory, right? Not only because the factory required everyone to kind of be in the same place for the same time period, because their work was so highly interconnected. You know, if you turn the crank and the thing moves on and there's nobody in the next station, the whole thing shuts down, but also because the relationship between input and output was so tightly coupled. I mean, the individual employee didn't have the ability to speed up or slow down their, their work. They, their tasks were very clearly defined in this kind of Taylorist way that even though we've moved past both of those things, both the synchronous interconnectivity and the tight relationship between input and output, we still kind of have that mental model in, in our heads as, yeah. as managers, right? I think you're right. And that's in a, the old assembly line system, hours inputted might actually have been a reasonable proxy for productivity, but it makes no sense in a knowledge-based economy where it's not the hours you put in, it's what you get accomplished. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for people to go away from that. And now in the pandemic, where we had so much remote work, you, this whole system breaks down. It doesn't make any sense. The manager can't walk around and see who's in the office and who's putting in hours. The whole concept of FaceTime, which was a little bit absurd to begin with, just keeping, staying late in the office so your manager could see that you were there. It makes no sense. And so we have to move off that, but it's very hard, as you say. People are very much there. This That system is embedded in a lot of different ways in our thinking. So we have to really shake things up to move people away from that. The other thing is people, managers and team have to be willing to put the time in up front to define these success metrics. It's so much easier to say, well, just be work nine to six, and then no one has to think about what exactly is being accomplished there, nine to six. So I think the good news is I think that, you know, the pandemic is just, is now just the death knell for this power system. But I'm sure that people will still count hours in certain profession, yeah. even if it doesn't make any sense. Well, so a lot of people have been saying that the pandemic has accelerated technological adoption and digital right. transformation. And the way it's done it is there was a fixed cost, an upfront fixed cost that had to be invested in order to generate the benefits of digital transformation. And so 
a lot of companies just kind of kicked the can down the road and said, well, you know, we don't really want to incur these fixed costs. Then they no longer had a choice. In order to move to kind of results-oriented evaluation of work, you have to make a kind of, you have to make a fixed cost investment in reorganizing the work process and and devising these new methods of, of evaluation, right? And and so was it just sort of a, a reluctance to make that initial fixed investment in better evaluation tools and better kind of work design? I think partly that, partly it's just hours has a certain simplicity mm-hmm. that give people comfort. You can count hours. You know exactly how many hours are. The fact that it's a pretty meaningless number doesn't really phase a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And third is this sense of accountability. You can ask, why do accountants and lawyers and consultants still bill by the hour? Because people are handy. They have a hard time. They want to have some sense of accountability. Yeah. And that gives them what I would view as a false sense of accountability. So... They feel like somehow if the person is in the office a lot of hours, then they must be working not only hard, but well. And that's where it really falls off. So I think the pandemic, as you say, is accelerating and sort of really bringing to the fore how unsatisfying a system of county hours is, right. but doesn't fall away so easily. Well, I mean, the, the flip side of that is is... You know, a lot of production processes use piecework as an evaluation tool, but piecework has its own problems, right? So, you know, if you have a salesperson and they have no incentive to cooperate with the other salespeople or, you know, the quality is no, is no longer, you know, becomes a subordinate consideration. And so there's always been problems there. So, you know, that's another super easy to use metric, but one that's, that's, that's not always informative. So I, I think what you're saying is that in order to have a really good metric, you have to be very, very careful and and deliberate about the definition of that metric. And it has to be continuously updated and reviewed. It has to be something that you do very explicitly and, and you have to invest resources in it. Yeah. And I think that the good news is once you get to success metrics, you then have a much better system of what I call performance feedback. I mean, right now in most organizations, We have annual performance reviews and they're terrible. They're not useful to the company. They're not useful to the employees. And partly because they only occur once a year and partly because there really aren't these very concrete metrics on which people can really focus and say, okay, well, did you, did you achieve these? And if you didn't, let's think about what we could do to help you get there. Uh, but I mean, you can't really have a very good discussion by saying you came in every day, nine to six. So therefore you must've been doing good work. I mean, that's crazy. Right. Well, there's always been a difference between independent contractors and employees and with independent contractors, you kind of have to be a little bit more specific about the purpose or objective. You have to be a little more precise about the success metrics than you are with employees precisely because employees are, you know, subject to administrative control. But now we're moving to a world where, you know, that boundary is blurring. You, you talk in, in this book, uh, Remote Inc., about how everyone is essentially running a business of one. Uh, and right, and, and, right. and, and they're, they're doing it, whether, whether they're an independent contractor or an employee, they have to think of themselves as running a sole proprietorship that has sort of a 
contractual-like relationship with the company that they, they work for. And so you emphasize that it's incumbent on the employee to insist upon or demand or, or cooperatively develop a, a set of expectations. So even if the, the boss is not providing those expectations, th then the employee needs to kind of force them to articulate them so that they can actually start from the, the end and, and work backwards. Because if you don't have those explicit goals, then it's hard to know what to do. Right. If you're an yeah. employee. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. That's why we preach the business of one, which is another way of saying you have control over your own time, your own resources, your own skills. And so you ought to view yourself as if you're a small business owner and you're not there just to take detailed instructions every hour or every day from your boss. You're there to accomplish these objectives and success metrics, but it's up to you to figure out how to do that best. And if you can ship your mindset, that's a big step toward being more productive and organizations need to be able to support people to do that. But it's very different than the way a lot of organizations are run. So would you say then that to be a manager in today's world, you have to be even better at delegating than you were in the past? I mean, I, I tell my MBA students that one of the most important things they're going to learn in business school is the art of delegation. And if they do it really well, they, they can basically delegate the delegating. And, and uh, now, now an extreme case of this, you talk about when you were first hired by Fidelity, by, by Ned Johnson, and, and you asked him, well, for a job description. And he said, job description, figure out what to do and do it. Now that's, that seems a little, that seems a little vague. I mean, yeah, it, that, was a pretty, that was a pretty big delegation. <laughs> That was a big delegation, perhaps uh, not always workable, though in my case, I, I loved it, so I thought it was great. But you're absolutely right that as you go up the, the hierarchy, and uh, people usually go up the hierarchy because they're great performers, mm -hmm. and then they come to realize that they can't just keep being great performers. They have to learn how to manage and how to delegate. And that, for a lot of the people that I've coached has been the most difficult transition because one of the reasons they, maybe the main reason they got promoted all the time was because they were such good performers. They got everything done. So they get up to a higher position and they then keep trying to do more and more and more. And the people under them start to realize that they're going to do it. So if the senior manager is going to take all this on his or her plate, then they don't have an incentive to do it. So I agree with you totally. Delegation is hugely important. And that is a critical uh, skill that takes a while for people to learn. So I think one of the messages of both books is that time is probably your scarcest uh, resource. I preach this also that money is money, but time is, is something that runs out very, very quickly. And so you offer a, a variety of perspectives on how to think about time, one of which is this idea of kind of like a time audit. I don't know whether you use that term, but I always use that term in my teaching. It's like, you know, make sure that you not only, kind of like in a financial audit, you want to know, well, where where is your money going? And then is it going where you want it to go, basically? And so with respect to your time, if you're acting in a way that's kind of play it by ear all the time, then you'll soon find that, you know, you wound up wasting a lot of your time and not achieving your goals. So, so how, how important is it to be super explicit about your time usage? 
Well, I think it's very important and it, it's linked to the idea of really being explicit about your priorities. What are your priorities? What are the three, four, five things that you really want to get accomplished in the next month or year or whatever the time frame you're using? And then you ought to go back over your week and think about how much of your time you spent on what you said were your top priorities. And the answer is, for most people, it's less than a majority of time. They spend a lot of time on other people's priorities. That's essentially what they're doing. And so if you really want to use your time wisely, you got to sort of link it very closely to what you have as your priorities. And auditing yourself occasionally is a good way to remind yourself about what you really should be spending your time doing. Well, so I think there are parallels between your, in, now that you have a business of one, there's parallels between how corporations think about their priorities and how individuals think about it, right? So we often talk about the three horizon model in business where, you know, there's the goals for this year and the goals for five years out and, and then 10 years out. How does one determine the list of, of priorities and yeah. how does one I, actually I guess figure out? I'm impressed by the fact that five years out, for a lot of people and a lot of businesses is like an eternity and it's not very useful. So I ask people to start by thinking about what are their three or four top professional goals for the next year? That's about all that I see that people can really keep in their head and is operational. Of course, they can tell you about all these long-term goals, but they change and the world changes and you change. So. I like to start people by setting priorities for the next year and then ask them to bring that to bear by the next weeks, by the week. So they have their annual priorities and then they can think on Sunday night, what am I trying to get accomplished this week? What are the must-dos? And then, you know, set up a set of priorities, must-dos, nice-to-dos, and then every evening revise that in light of what's happened in the day. But I tell you, I think I know about business schools talk about five years and 10 years, and 20 years. I think for a lot of people, that's not a viable time frame. Now, of course, if you're in the oil exploration business or you're trying to build highways and these things, you can't just think about one year, but you can have these larger goals, but you got to bring them down to, well, what are you going to get in Congress this year? Otherwise, they're very abstract and they don't really get you where you need to be. So when we think about kind of the time sucks that get in the way of achieving things, it seems like there's two kinds. One is these sort of planned time sucks, like the meetings that clog up our calendars and and then the kind of unplanned stuff, which is that people are continuously bombarded with you know, with emails and, and chat and Slack messages and, and then the push notifications from social media and so forth. Do you need a different management strategy for, for both of those? Yeah, I think that what I advocate is that everyone, when they set up their schedule to leave an hour free in the morning and an hour free in the afternoon, and that's really for contingency planning. Because as you say, you have all your planned stuff, but it's the unplanned stuff that really kills you. And that can be personal, your family obligations. That can be something that comes up where 
a news reporter wants to talk to you or the CEO calls you and you've got a crisis. So that's why I want people to have the narrow opening, narrow opening in the morning and in the uh, afternoon. And, you know, if you don't have a contingency, you can use that for thinking time. And that's the other thing that I see a lot of executives not doing, not leaving time in their schedule for thinking. I've seen so many executives that have this little index card with every hour in the day taken mm-hmm. and it's all filled up. And, you know, I say to them, well, is thinking part of your job? They of course say yes. And I say, well, where, I don't see that on that little index card. So where is that? So an hour in the morning, an hour after that, it gives you contingency time and thinking time. It's great. And. Anybody who doesn't think they need both of those hasn't really spent a lot of time in the work world. So should, should people then set aside time specifically for social media rather than just dipping in whenever the spirit moves them? Oh, I think absolutely. Because when the spirit moves them is often, and the studies show that people are get pretty addicted to social media, pretty addicted to their various electronics. And so. If people don't confine that, then they wind up looking at it all the time. So people have said to me, oh, well, you shouldn't have cut off all slack, all messages for all day Thursday or whatever it is. I think that's too artificial. In most organizations, you can't cut people off for the whole day. But you, you can ask people to try to train themselves not to look at this stuff every minute or six or seven minutes, which is what most people do. Turn off those little sounds. Those sounds are addictive. It's hard to get away from them. And try to, you know, look at it every 60 to 90 minutes, you know, that's reasonable. And these days people want you to respond pretty quickly, but six or seven minutes, which is the average for a lot of people, that just means that you're not doing very much else except re looking at those messages and responding to them. So that's the opposite of pursuing your own priorities. That means basically you're going to be pursuing other people's priorities most of the day. Now, what can lead, what can managers do to try and facilitate more productivity in their teams? So when it comes to things like meetings and, and communication expectations, these are dictated in part from the top, right? There's a culture. Yeah. Of, uh, of the communication culture, right? Like how, how often are people expected to communicate with each right. other? How quickly are they supposed well, to respond? Like to... We urge managers to set ground rules for their teams and that those ground rules should say, we're not expecting you to respond within two minutes of every message. And we think you ought to respond within the day. That would be reasonable. The messages also say, we're not expecting you to be looking at your messages at midnight and trying to do these things. So I think setting ground rules is really important. And then second of all, you know, the managers can really change the way meetings are looked at. I always like to say, you've got to have an agenda for every meeting. And if you're invited to a meeting and you don't get an agenda, you say, well, I'd like to go, but I need to see what the agenda is so I can figure out whether this meeting is consistent with my priorities. And that really helps a lot. And then, you know, once we got to Zoom, we get people back-to-back video meetings. I think it's incredibly tiring. There's a lot of evidence that people, not to use a pun, but Zoom out if they go five, six hours in a row. 
So I like to encourage people to, you know, have only most 45 minute meetings, at least 15 minutes to regather and do these things. And managers need to, you know, when they're leading meetings, they need to lead good meetings. They need to tee up the meeting, tee up the key decisions in the first 10 minutes, not spend most of the meeting going through PowerPoints. And they need to get pretty tough upon at the end. What have we decided? What are the next steps? And who's going to take that? And third of all, during the meeting, they really need to promote discussion and debate. And they can do all those things, make a big difference in any organization. There are so many organizations where people go to back-to-back meetings and they're just looking at a lot of PowerPoints and, and they walk away at the end, not even knowing what exactly was decided. Nobody mm-hmm. quite knows that. So their basic meeting hygiene that should be required for all managers. Yeah, it's kind of funny because you'd think that competitive pressure would kind of eliminate some of these unproductive practices, right? So if you have a product that's inferior to another product, it's going to wind up disappearing in the marketplace. And so one would think that, you know, organizations that are able to design good place rules and squeeze more productivity out of their people are ultimately going to outperform. But it seems like a lot of these practices have persisted for a long time in, in a lot of organizations. Yeah, I think they're really hard to change and people don't make the connection. They don't make the connection to the product isn't that good. They're not that responsive to the customers and the way they're organizing their messages and meetings, they, they don't connect them very well. And it's not like it's a one-to-one correlation. So it's not like you say, well, you had four fewer meetings this week, then you'd have a great product. But it's the whole mindset of how you're thinking about your priorities and how you're thinking about your time management. And the organizations that are clear about the priorities and get people to be output-oriented, they're going to be more successful. You know, we've seen that, but it's hard for these organizations to change. I think they may need a, someone to shake them up. Now, of course, that's that's a lot harder to do in the public sector and in academia. And you've you're worked in, you're absolutely right about that. <laughs> well, you've worked in, in the public sector. You've worked in academia. You've worked in both state and federal government. You've worked in regulatory bodies. You know, you've worked in for financial firms. Do you, do you see, I mean, do you see a, a much more limited possibilities in, in sort of the public sector? Have you, have you seen yeah, examples? Unfortunately, I, I, I do think the public sector is more limited because uh, the, the rules for employees are often set by a bureaucracy. They're very hard to chain. You, you also, uh, second of all, can't have a lot of difference in compensation in many public sectors so that you can't give people the sorts of rewards. And third of all, until quite recently, you probably couldn't have had a lot of flexibility on time and place. That's uh, changing. I mean, the best public sector organization I worked for was the SEC because it's a small agency where people, a lot of people, spend three or four years at the agency and then go back in the private sector. Well, I mean, universities seem like a peculiar um, hybrid because, you know, as a, as a faculty member, there's almost zero transition when you move to work from home because it's very 
you know, results oriented. It's okay. You're supposed to publish this or you're supposed to teach this and how you do it. It's up to you and nobody's tracking your time. But then when you move over to kind of the administrative side of things, it's much more like, like a government bureaucracy and, and you have kind of rules and you have, you know, the employees are expected to be in all these meetings and, and they have to work nine to five and so forth. So, you know, universities seem to be exemplars on the one hand of this output oriented metric driven organization. But on the other hand, the, the, the bureaucracy that you see in universities is very government-like. Yeah. I think probably one way to look at it is individual professors and have a great deal of flexibility. They're very output oriented, but once you have the department group uh, and then the administrative staff, those tend to be quite inflexible and uh, very difficult to change happening. And very difficult to get people to work together in many organizations. So I think you're right, but at least you have individuals that can be very productive. So that's a, in an academic setting. So that's a big positive. Now, I think the, the, the meme that came out of your work that has gained the biggest following is this Ohio principle. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I, th- I think it's a, it's a, it's a cool concept. Uh, and, yeah. and it sort of, it sort of makes me think that there's this kind of priority drift. Even if you start off with a great, great perspective on your priorities at the beginning of the week or the beginning of the day or the beginning of the quarter, there's, there's like this drift. And so you need to continuously go back in and do these mid-flight checks and adjustments and so forth. So how does this Ohio rule help you in that? Well, Ohio, it has nothing to do with the Buckeye State. It means only handle it once. And so uh, this is, you know, what I say is when you're thinking about uh, message overload, uh, you've got to set up filters. You've got to sort of keep yourself from seeing a large number of messages and have them filtered out. And then the ones that come through, you can just look at who sent it to you and the subject matter, and you can skip over a lot of them. But the question is, what happens to those that are really important? Mm -hmm. What happens to the messages from your boss or your spouse or the IRS, something where you really do need to respond? So people who are overwhelmed tend to put them in some sort of holding pattern or holding box and folder. And, you know, there are two things that happen. One is they forget about them entirely. The IRS comes and repossesses their car, so that's not very good or they forgot about important meeting with their boss, or alternatively, they remember it a few days later, and then they spend another half an hour or an hour trying to figure out what exactly that message was. So my answer is, if you can, just answer it right then and there. So don't handle it twice, handle it once. Mm -hmm. And so that has been the thing that's somehow caught on when I visit my pub, when I used to visit my publisher in New York, the, uh, a lot of the administrative staff would say to me, I've gotten so much more productive. I'm using Ohio. So yeah. clearly, clearly has caught on. Well, I mean, the, the way I think about it is that if you operate as if you have a super high discount rate, right? If you, if you have kind of hyperbolic discounting, then you're ultimately going to wind up grinding to a halt because, you know, you wind up deferring things and delaying things. And then the backlog becomes so big and, and everything takes longer later 
at the end of the day than it does if you do it. I mean, the example yeah. I use for my students is I, I have this orange juicer that I have. Uh, I make orange juice every morning. And, and I remember I would um, typically be running so late and be in such a hurry that I would make myself orange juice and then leave the orange juicer in the sink. And then, of course, next morning I would come out and it would all be dried and crusted. And so it would take me 10 minutes to, to clean it. And then, of course, I didn't have time to wash it. You know, it takes 30 seconds to wash it after, but it takes 10 minutes to wash it before. Okay, so right. every day I had 10 minutes wasted when I could have just, but, you yeah. know, that's that's the cycle that people are going to get trapped in when they kind of delay deciding and, and procrastinate on stuff when there's no good reason to, right? There's no new information that you're waiting for. And so you might right. as well make the decision right now. Yeah. Now, if you, do, if you do need information, you can always put a tickler and yeah. you know, come back, but. People will put these, uh, then put the messages or put the meeting those or things in, uh, in holding patterns often wind up with two or 300 of these things mm -hmm. that they say, well, they're pretty important. And then you, you know, it takes a lot of time to sort through those. Yeah. Things. I put little yellow stars against like, you know, most of my emails. <laughs> so right. It's kind of like, well, no, no point at right. that point. Right. Right. It, it, you know, everything's a yellow star. And so you then spend the whole evening going through your yellow stars. And it, that's complicated. So, yeah, I agree. Ohio, it's really worth it. Well, so it seems like an awful lot of burden to put on each individual to make them into sole proprietor of this business. When you think about CEOs, right? CEOs have personal assistants. They have people that kind of they go through and weed through the email. They go through and weed through the calendar. They'll right. say, okay, look, here's what you're doing today. And then, oh, this meeting that's coming in five minutes, here's a briefing so you can spend right, 30 seconds right. getting up to speed. If you're a business of one, you typically don't have a PA. You mentioned a lot of different technological solutions. Do you think that we, we will ultimately be in a position where everyone will have, I, I like to, th I used to think when Facebook first got started, I was like, wow, this is great. They can be my PA. They can go through and read all the newspapers and magazines and then boil it down to the 10 articles that I need to read, right? Is that where we're headed? Well, I think, I think the answer is, is a combination of using technological tools to filter and organize. And so those can help filter out all the, a lot of stuff you don't want and uh, help you focus on the high priorities. But in the end, you've got to put some energy up front, be intentional and I think, more, you know, fewer and fewer people are having personal assistance. So I think that's on the way out. But I think as we, as voice commands get better, then we can order our computers and order various things to help us better. And that, that will help. So I think technological tools are very helpful. But in the end, you've got to be intentional mm -hmm. and you've got to develop some of these I, I really think of them as habits. You've got to develop them as habits so they feel more like built into the way you go about doing things rather than you're having to think every time, well, what exactly I should do? You, you've got to have productivity habits and mindsets. and Those will drive you in the right direction. Now, it seems like none of the things that you talk about are necessarily limited to the the work front. I mean, everything you talk about could just as easily be applied to the home front. I mean, you've got a ton yeah, of priorities, you know, you've got to fix the roof, you got to shop for the groceries, you've got to take the kids to school, right? I mean, you have all these things too, right? So presumably you've got to 
prioritize there. And uh, and would, do, are there any differences? Do you think? In, well, in I think of... the big difference is the emotional content. Mm-hmm. The emotional content is much bigger at the home front, and so and the process of going about it is much more important. So it can't be quite as cut and dry, you know. And my wife's a psychotherapist, so she would be the first to tell me that uh, process is much more important just about your listening and sort of nodding your head and really going through this and really understanding the emotional issues. So I think those are harder to put into a productivity So the in- input inputs are more important <laughs> than... than uh, you have to, well, inputs it, count as much as that process is a lot more important. Okay. That's I would say. Right. But you mentioned in the book, Remote Inc., that because we're at home, we're, we don't have that divide. I've always found it useful to go to the office or go to, I used to go to libraries all the time to study. Right. And, and I used to find that I could never study at home. I'd always go to an office or go to a library or go to a conference room, go someplace that was separated from my home environment. Um, now I have, you know, a dedicated room in my house, which is where I go to do these, these sorts right. of things. And, right. and, um, you know, there's this, this separation now that we're working from home, that separation is a lot harder. I mean, I, I, Zoom with people all the time in their bedrooms, right? And you can see their bedrooms, see their kids, their dogs, everything running around. Does that, on the one hand, make it more difficult to be focused on on the results, or is it it easier to integrate? It depends. If they really don't have a separate space, it makes it more difficult, and they really have to set clearer boundaries. And it's hard if you know you're in a really small apartment and you don't have much uh, uh, separation. So that's why I think a lot of people. You go to libraries, go to coffee shops. If it wasn't for COVID, there'd be lots of things, places you could go as a remote worker other than your office if you really were there. But I think the other thing that has to happen here is that people have to structure their own day when they're at home. They don't have like, if you commute to the office and come back, sort of the day has its own structure and people have to be proactive structuring their own day when they're working remotely. And that takes a lot of effort, especially if you're in a situation where you don't have a clear room and, you know, that's very different. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are talking about how you're more productive now working from home, but there's also critics that say there's something lost in terms of collaboration and and creativity and and so forth. Uh, At the end of the day, I I think they're both right in the sense that for certain types of work, that requires a lot of collaboration and brainstorming. You really do want to have people together and be in the office. But there are certain sorts of work that requires extended concentration. And then you're really better off being at home. You know, I've looked at all the studies and they're all over the place. And many of these are just self-reported. So you really have to wonder whether we're really getting true situation. And of course, lots of people are being forced to work at home when their kids can't go to school. So it's a very unusual period. But in the end, the hybrid will be important because certain sorts of work, certain sorts of teams, certain aspects of jobs are always going to be done better in person where people get together and others are, are not. And that's why the hybrid is going to be the dominant form. Last question. Goldilocks plan. This is something which you point, you, you, you end your book 
with this idea of the Goldilocks plan. Right. And that's really about how do you design for both yourself and for your employees a environment where they can choose the optimal mix for themselves. Right. So Goldilocks plan is not too much remote work and not too little remote work. My co-author was very snazzy in coining that. But um, I think the two key things are this. One is you shouldn't try to make that decision for the whole company. We see CEOs making these pronouncements that the whole company should come back four days or two days or stuff. It's every company, every organization is a conglomeration of teams. And they're very different. In a financial firm, you have the investment analysts, the marketing people, the customer service people, the technology support. They're all very different. So what the optimal hybrid should look like, what the Goldilocks plan is going to be very different from group to group. And then the second is that, you know, you've got to consider a constellation of factors and we delineate them, function, location of your people, the organizational structure, the culture, scheduling. So you've got to go through all these. And the last thing I'll say is you probably got to experiment a little. We really don't know what the optimal configurations are. And we're probably in every company and organization going to try out a few. And then over time, we'll figure out what the right answer is. Well, they say, if you want to get something done, ask a busy man. So I think if you need something done, ask Bob Posen, because he is an incredibly busy man. He's got a lot going on, and he's got these books, Remote Inc. and Extreme Productivity. Check them out. Thank you so much, Bob, for joining me. Well, thank you, Greg. Pleasure to talk to you, and it's always a pleasure to have someone who interviews me who's really read and thought about uh, the books and I write because uh, that's not always true. So thanks very much for all your support. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.